hey, this is Mark, and uh, just as a uh, preview, precursor, prologue to the episode that you're going to listen to, I had to add this in well after the fact, but uh, an executive decision was made, and um, yeah, there's going to be some gaps where uh, it's going to seem a little weird, but um, yeah, I'm just trying to play it safe, so just please forgive me, and uh, bear with me, and there's only a couple episodes that are going to have these gaps. So, there's that. If you're listening to us now, you're listening to one of those episodes. Uh, I personally, I personally do not find them so upsetting, but sorry. And if you just kind of continue on, you won't ever hear this ever again. Thanks. Imagine that you're in your 20s. Imagine that you've gone back to revisit the music of your youth with fresh eyes. Imagine you come across a sound you find to be driving and exciting, yet sophisticated and introspective. You would learn that this type of music is typically referred to as adult alternative. You would learn that there has been an entire market of 30-somethings that have been listening to adult alternative for years. In particular, today, we'll be looking at 1997's release by Depeche Mode, Ultra. I really didn't know how to introduce this album. This is the first time that we talk about Adult Alternative and its associations. Adult Alternative is the general adult-type radio format. Think Sheryl Crow, Counting Crows, and uh, any other artists that probably have Crow in their name. Depeche Mode themselves are widely considered to be an electronic band or electronic rock band. Uh, dance rock and alternative rock have been thrown in that ring too, and they've been active since 1980. Their music, due to its age, tends to target actual adults because they were younger when they first heard Depeche Mode. This is also the first time that we talk about Depeche Mode, so let's do that a little bit. Depeche Mode was a four-piece electronic rock band just prior to the production of this album. Alan Wilder, a classically trained musician who was contributing writing and arrangement to the band, aside from playing synths, had left the band due to frustrations in the, and I quote, internal relations and working practices of the group. Dave Gahn, writer, lead vocalist, and frontman, had a serious drug problem during this time. This left Martin Gore, a very talented writer, and Andy Fletcher, social band glue and business person, who had not received a writing credit uh, to produce the upcoming album Ultra. So basically, it left Martin Gore. They did record with Tim Simonon, who was a 90s electronica and trip-hop producer, who also made music as Bomb the Bass, and seemed to be part of Left Field and Curve. This definitely gives a different quality. Not a quality, uh, a sheen, perhaps, a coating, uh, a, a specularity, if you want to be technical, I guess, shininess, maybe. It's said by a few people that this is not their favorite album uh, by Depeche Mode. I'm not necessarily going to argue that, but I am going to argue that there are some tracks on here that are quite wonderful. This album has made it onto some lists of the top 90s albums, but, you know, let's run some actual numbers because that's, that's what we do here. 
Ultra was released on the 14th of April in 1997 on Mute Records. It hit number one in the UK charts and number five on the Billboard 200. It was number one in Spain and Sweden and number two in Canada. It charted in a myriad of other countries, a cornucopia of international charts. The album went gold and was in fact the first Depeche Mode album since Black Celebration to not hit platinum in the US. April 2006 has the album selling 584,000 copies in the US, but over a million in the UK. It consists of 11 tracks, plus one hidden instrumental, and lasts 60 minutes and 4 seconds. Out of those 11 tracks, Ultra spawned four singles, which are Barrel of a Gun, It's No Good, Home, and Useless. Barrel of a Gun kicks off this album. I say kicks, but this album is not one that kicks per se. This album is not one that I would say kicks at all. I would describe this as a perhaps creeping introspection. I don't know. Uh, ominous realization? Not quite. It's not massive attack tier, but it's, it's in that vein, in that direction, perhaps. Uh, not necessarily of that ilk. It's a very different album. This album isn't a banger or a slapper or a heat rock. Barrel of a Gun might really set the pace and tone for this album, and this is something that, uh, through an anal analytical listening, I'm kind of learning that people do on purpose. It's an inevitable drive forward. Dave Gaughan has a really telling interview with Entertainment Weekly where he talks candidly about this point in his life. In it, he calls Ultra one of his favorites, and gets around to the fact that it seems that Martin Gore had perhaps targeted him for this track, and he said, and I quote, I don't even know if the song was written about me, or for me, or poking at me, end quote. It seems that the metaphor is that addiction is like staring down the barrel of a gun, and at any point in time, that gun can go off. Dave Gann actually overdosed in 1996 during the production of this album, and that is how pertinent and, and, and poignant and appropriate this metaphor is. The gun went off in his face, but it obviously did not kill him. Don't look down the barrel of a gun if you see a gun. Tell an adult uh, gun safety. Don't point it at people or things. Yeah, um... The Love of Thieves is a weird non-ballad. I think it takes the 500 Days of Summer approach where you think it's about love, but it's actually about everything that's wrong with what people think about love. Perhaps celebrity, perhaps religion. There's a lot of places that you can go with this song and the trance-inducing atmosphere and the down-tuned, down-tempo surf guitar that Martin Gore is playing only kind of helps immerse you in this, steep you in it, perhaps. Home is actually one of my favorite Depeche Mode songs from the first time I heard it. This is a Martin Gore vocal, and it's quite good. 
I'll say something about Gore that may be something of a backhanded compliment, but by hearing him speak, you'd never think that he could sing the way that he does. Home definitely has this timelessness in it, in that it doesn't have orchestra hits or air horns, but I think that, you know, anyone could, could peg this for the 90s if they tried hard enough, but not in a, a gauche, like, tacky way. Not Zuba Pants 90s. The orchestration really brings in the adult alternative into it. Uh, it's quite beautiful, paired with his vocals, a lot of string instruments, it's all wonderful. Getting into the subject matter, I think it's rather straightforward, even though it's imbued with some really strong and, and great imagery. It's No Good is maybe more traditional Depeche Mode fair. It's pretty electronic, ever so slightly industrial, and is about being fantastic and irresistible. It's still a damned good song, in my opinion, and uh, this is definitely an age-appropriate song for adult, alternat adult alternative radio. And you'll find that I have a problem saying adult alternative. I want to say, like, adult alternative. But that... That sounds like nothing. Useless follows after a brief instrumental, Use Link, and I'm going to go out on a limb and assume that it's about the two sides of a conversation between an addict and their friend. This really hits close to home for the current events of the band. It's another relaxed track that I like on this album. There is... This sleazy, sleazy guitar part that Gore plays on it, which I, I kind of love. I'm, I'm a little bit of a sucker for a sleazy guitar track. Reference. Sister of Night is this floaty and ethereal opiate dream of a song of potentially ambiguous subject matter that runs into the more grounded opiate dream of the instrumental Jazz Thieves. The lyrics in Sister of Night talk about hunger, longing, and flesh that burns. This sounds a lot like addiction talk, but this may also be about sex and relationships, perhaps, maybe a codependence, uh, that need for validation through your partner. The part, he'll make such a perfect prize, but the cold light of day will give the game away. That seems like someone who's jumping into relationships to satisfy some need, but ultimately is, is making bad decisions. Free State is a weird track that feels like it wouldn't be out of place in StarCraft, Breaking Bad, or Cowboy Bebop with its western twang. One could take this as a metaphor for isolation, the empty and open vistas of the southwest of the United States being the imagery here. I think it can be safe to interpret this song as coming into one's own uh, self-actualization, or just getting through recovery um, in the addiction sense. The cage and emotional emancipation could really go both ways here, and I actually quite like this picture, regardless of how on the nose it may be. This is not a song that I enjoyed upon first listen many years ago, but that I quite like now.
The Bottom Line is a Martin Gore vocal, and it is quite typically a very romantic song in the academic kind as well as the sexy kind of romantic. I don't actually like this track very much. I, it's, it's definitely trying something new with the unconventional uh, film noir double bass, uh, but it just falls short of speaking to me on the level that the other tracks of this album do. Insight looks like it's about an addict's desire to live and to recover. There's an element of forgiveness in there, and there's the duo of Gan and Gore, and that is appropriate and, and poignant indeed. The song as a whole isn't great, even though the message is. The message is, is very good, I think. The hidden instrumental, Junior Painkiller, is just, it's just a track. It really doesn't amount to much of anything. I, I can only just shrug. The album doesn't finish as strong as it starts. With an average length of five and a half minutes, the songs on this album are quite long, especially for a pop record, but Depeche Mode doesn't necessarily adhere to the formula or standard of what pop music is, then I guess that's why they're alternative, and um, that is something that makes them who they are. Had they just been like everyone else, they would have faded long before Ultra was released 17 years into their career. This may be a pivot, sure, maybe, but it was out of necessity. You can say that this far into being enormous international rock stars, it was time for some change and that did happen. You can't, you can't make the same record that you've made over and over. If you are not even remotely familiar with Depeche Mode, this would not necessarily be the best way in unless you're over the age of 30. I'm not saying it's not a good album, because I think that it is good. And I'm not saying that it's not for everyone, because I think that it can be. But I'm saying that there is a requisite amount of uh, patience, uh, experience, and introspection involved. This is me looking at it with perspective, though. I've been listening to this album for maybe 10 years at this point. I didn't like it half as much back then as I do now. You may hear me saying that a lot on this podcast, and it may be cliche, but that does not make it untrue. There's definitely a difference between those two things. Turning 30 is also an arbitrary milestone, but I mean, at least from the inside looking out, it seems to be a real thing, and, and time has transformed the uh, time has transformed how I interpret the art I consume. Uh, thanks for listening to Mark's Music Collection. You can find me on Twitter at CoolMarkD, cool with a C and Mark with a K. And you can find this podcast on scumbags.com, scum with two M's, as well as in the near future when the recording schedule works, iTunes and Google Play and wherever podcasts are found. Founds. Wherever podcasts are found. You know, please uh, tweet at me with your feedback. I would love to hear what you think about these albums that are in my collection and my interpretation of them. I have added some show links that bring up some of the stuff, some of the facts per se, maybe some of the facts, if there's anything factual that did happen uh, by accident, on accident, and they'll be in the show notes. 
a lot of that is good reading and will even get you a little deeper into the album that I was talking about. Thanks. Keep, keep, keep spinning Re- records because records spin, CDs spin. Most medias, but MP3s don't spin. Um, keep listening. <clears throat> and um, I guess this is just an aside, a postscript. I guess what uh, what this would be. So my living situation is fluid, not fluid, but uh, it's it's transitional. Uh, transitional maybe being a grand word, but things are things are in flux. Um, so just now, after recording and editing all of this podcast, I finally actually pulled my vinyl 180-gram remastered copy of Depeche Mode's Ultra out to maybe play it, because that is my life. Maybe to play it, uh, that's part of being a dad, a homeowner, having a full-time job, and um, dealing with fully adult uh, issues. And adulthood has been generous in the issues that it has presented that were unexpected, regardless of that. The gatefold has an entire, like, uh, I don't want to say essay, but a good amount of stuff from producer Daniel Miller, uh, from Mute Records. And he says some really good stuff in here. He says that, uh, hmm. I guess to sum up Ultra, he says, quote, Ultra was an album that Depeche Mode recorded against all the odds. Everyone got very burnt out by songs of faith and devotion. I know there was a general feeling that this was the end of the band, with all their problems and Dave's near-fatal overdose. But I never thought that was true. End quote. Yeah, um, so he talks about how Ultra was this like uh, transitional and tentative step, how Dave was uh, in bad state, and how they decided, hey, let's make a couple songs and, and see how it goes. They also talk about, he also talks about Tim Simonon. He also talks about Tim Simonon and Dave moving to New York, but uh, he really talks about Ultra and then he says, quote, Ultra has a sparer sound in its arrangements than previous Depeche Mode albums. Alan Wilder was always big on strings and choirs, but Tim comes from more of a hip-hop and dance background, so he obviously had a different take on it. He did a very good job, as he was still very young at the time and had to deal with all of these crises. End quote. Daniel Miller also goes into the production of the album. He says, quote, We struggled with singles, to be honest, but there are some really good tracks on Ultra. In retrospect, Home is one of their best tracks ever. That is the one song here that you could put in a top ten of Depeche Mode tracks without question. The lyrics are fantastic. They built the song around the lyrics, and the arrangements work really well. They still play it live, and it's amazing to see how audiences respond. End quote. I have seen them play home live. I saw Depeche Mode in, uh, I guess, Sunrise. Fort Lauderdale, maybe. It depends on how they spin it. Um, for the 
touring tour of the universe or touring the universe tour. And they did do home. They did a, a different maybe arrangement of home because they used Martin Gore's vocals to kind of give the rest of the band a break. And I still enjoyed it. I still loved it. Home is legitimately one of my favorite Depeche Mode tracks, possibly one of my favorite, you know, top 10 tracks of anything ever. So I fully agree with Daniel on that. And uh, yeah, it was just a nice thing to kind of come across looking at the gatefold uh, in person with uh, real eyes for the first time. So once again, thanks for listening. Sorry, I thought you thought it was done. And I was like, ha ha, it's done. It's done. It wasn't done. But now it's done. Thank you. <laughs>